Welcome to Sabbath School brought to you by It Is Written. We're glad that you've chosen to join us again today as we continue our journey through a fascinating subject and what we hope you're finding is an uplifting and encouraging subject. We are looking at death, dying, and the future hope. If there was no future hope, death and dying would be terrible, but at least with Jesus we have that future hope. This week, we're going to be looking at the New Testament hope. This is week number eight, lesson number eight of 14. So we are making our way through, but there's still a ways to go. We're glad that once again this week we can welcome back our guest. He is the author of this quarter's Sabbath School lesson, Dr. Alberto Tim. He's an associate director of the LNG White Estate. Alberto, welcome back. I am more than delighted to be with you during this series. So it's been exciting. We've looked at seven lessons so far. We're about to look at the New Testament hope, which of course is an incredible hope. And we're going to start by taking a look at a, a couple of verses. They're the, the memory verses that we have for this week. They're found over in 1 John. 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. 1 John 5, verse 11 says, And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life, He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Well, the first question is, what life is this talking about? It says that some people have it and some people don't. Let's see if we can clarify what life it is that's being discussed here. I believe this this passage actually is self-evident. And the reason why I started with, with verse 11 instead of just verse 12, because verse 11 defines what kind of life is being considered. You will see in verse 11 very clearly that um, the Apostle John is speaking about eternal life. For one simple reason, all of us here, our generation, we are alive. If you would not be alive, you would not be uh, able to watch us uh, in this program. So all of us, we are alive. So um, natural life or the life that we enjoy here is somebody that all have the saved and the wicked. But now, uh, speaking about eternal life, you know that John splits it says that those who are in Christ, they have everlasting life. And those who are not in Christ do not have. If I would pick up a passage of the Bible that would summarize our our whole series or the Bible teaching on the state of the dead and uh, human nature and so, I would stay with this passage here because it summarizes very nice the whole thing. And there is one more point that we should consider. The, the passage does not say that whoever is in Christ will end up having eternal life. It says that a person has already. So eternal life is not something for the future, is now. But then you can ask me, but people still die. Yes, eternal life is assured here. And immortality will be granted at the time of the resurrection. Or if we are still alive when Jesus comes, then we will be changed. But this is the glorious promise that we have. 
So this passage even rolls out the idea of an immortal soul. Because then we would have to say, well, does not have the fullness of life, but they would have some kind of eternal life. I'm referring to the wicked, but the, uh, the passage is very clear, does not have at all. So one group has life, the other group does not have life. It, it's pretty straightforward, unless you really want to try to twist words to, to put something there that isn't. One group gets it, the other group doesn't. But let me, let me toss this idea uh, at you. Let's say, hypothetically speaking, that all of this that we're talking about, this hope in the resurrection, this eternal life, uh, that all of it is an illusion, that it's not true, that there is no eternal life, that there is no resurrection, that there are no perfected bodies, there's no going to heaven, none of that. Let's say all of that is a fable. What would that mean? Well, I like very much a statement. I don't know exactly who who was the one that that really made it, but says that let's suppose that... uh, all the biblical hope is just an illusion. Even if that would be the case, it's worthwhile living for that illusion because it changes our life, it improves our life. But of course, and let's suppose that it is not an illusion, then I am really illuded, illuding myself. But you know that there are some passages, for instance, Paul is very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, You remember what it says over there. Yeah, in fact, uh, I'll go ahead and read it right now. Okay, please. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 19, and I may include verse 20 in here um, as well. Verse 19 says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But then verse 20 says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. So he says, if, we, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Yeah, in this case, I think that Paul is very clear. It's not an ambiguous language that he is employing. And then you have also uh, Peter. Peter had also some very strong conviction about this matter as well. He said, well, we receive these things not what does this, uh, the text actually say? Sure. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he says, and these are, these are beautiful verses. Yeah. He says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Actually, this is a reference to the transfiguration. You remember when Jesus was on the mountain and then appeared over there uh, Moses and Elijah. Uh, One representing those who will be raised from the dead and the other one the generation that will be alive when Jesus comes. So Peter uses this text as an example because that was really a portrait, a type of the final uh, gathering of all humanity when Jesus would come in glory. And he received already glory at that moment uh, during the transfiguration, but it would be a much broader uh, 
Senarium, the final gathering of all those who will be raised from the dead and those who will be transformed and see Jesus alive. So a beautiful miniature picture of Christ's second coming that, that he gives us on that, uh, on that mount. I want to come to another, uh, what we might call a famous passage, a popular passage, talking about this hope that we have in Christ. It's over in John 14, uh, verses 1 through 3. In fact, many people have probably memorized these verses. They're, they're uplifting enough to memorize. If you haven't, I'd encourage you to do so. John 14, verses 1 through 3 says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So Jesus says that he's gone to prepare a place for us, and that he's coming back again to take us to the place that he has prepared. Where did he go, and what's this place like? Well, the New Testament responds this question in a very nice way. He is in the heavenly sanctuary temple, uh, ministering as a high priest. In this, if you have doubts, it's just a matter of reading Hebrews, the epistle to the Hebrews, and that it says very clearly. So in this promise here that Jesus made, is not a matter that now the Messiah will appear and build the third, the third temple in, uh, in Jerusalem, and then all nations will be ruled by the Messiah from there. No, it's a heavenly reality. It's not a human um, reality. And Jesus is very clear that we'll be taken to heaven, into heaven. So the next question becomes, well, when? When is he going to come back and when is he going to take us to heaven? And the, the answer that has regularly and I think appropriately been given is, well, he's coming back soon. But uh, where does that idea come from? I, I think to a greater or lesser extent, it comes from the book of Revelation. There are at least four times in the book of Revelation where Jesus, in referring to the timing of his return, he says, I'm coming soon. I, I think we've got Revelation 3, 11, and then in Revelation 22 and verses 7, 12, and 20, he says, I'm coming back soon, I'm coming soon, I'm coming soon, I'm coming soon. So the question then becomes, well, when is soon? Well, theologians speak about a yet and not yet, or now and not yet. So in other words, you have to, to live with attention. There is the eschatology of the world or the humanity in general. And the other one is the eschatology of my own life. Because the second coming for me will not be further away than my last day of life here, when I die. It can be maybe some years from now, can be tomorrow, can even be today. Because of the uncertainty of life, there is the element of always now. The day of salvation, according to the book of Hebrews, chapter 3 and 4, is today, is not to, uh, tomorrow. There is no room for pro procrastination, so to say, in terms of salvation. And about a second coming, it would be an illusion for me to believe that a second coming would be just an event over there because I have no time, no other chance after I die. This is my chance now, and it can be very shortened. 
And we should be thank, uh, uh, thankful as a generation because if Christ would have come 100 years ago, we would not be alive. So the very same fact that God expanded it a little bit, delayed, if you want to use this language, the second coming, gives us a chance. But of course, it will not be delayed forever. And that's a chance that we should take advantage of. We don't want to lose that chance, that chance of being able to see Jesus come in the clouds of heaven. And if we should close our eyes in death between now and the time when he comes back, the intervening time between the time we die and when Jesus comes back will be like a moment, the twinkling of an eye. It will pass without our knowledge. And the next, next waking moment that we have, the next thought that we have is seeing Jesus come in the clouds of heaven. If you're enjoying this study, I want to encourage you, please do pick up the companion book to this quarter's Sabbath school lesson. It's called On Death, Dying, and the Future Hope by Dr. Alberto Tim. You can pick that up at itiswritten.shop. Itiswritten.shop. It goes into greater detail, greater depth, and answers a lot of questions about this subject. You'll want to make sure that you pick that up. We're going to be back in just a couple of minutes as we continue our study of the New Testament hope. The Trail of Tears. Entire people groups forcibly removed from their ancestral homelands and marched hundreds and hundreds of miles to a new land. Thousands of people uprooted and relocated. Thousands of people did. The Trail of Tears. The land that would become the United States was already home to millions of native peoples when Europeans arrived. Real people with real lives who over the next several centuries would endure real suffering. Join me for The Trail of Tears. We'll visit the places where the Trail of Tears began and we'll look forward to a day when God will wipe away all of our tears. The Trail of Tears, brought to you by It Is Written TV. Welcome back to Sabbath School, brought to you by It Is Written. We're looking at the New Testament hope this week, and we're going to look at a few more passages here before we're done. And I want to kind of build off what we just talked about. Jesus made a promise that he was coming back, that he was going to bring his children with him uh, to heaven, to paradise, if you will. And now we're going to take a look at some more of that promise, a fulfillment, if you will, Let's take a look at John 5, John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. In John 5, verse 28, Jesus says this. He says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation, or the King James says, of damnation. I want to couple that together with something else that Jesus said in the very next chapter in John 6, verse number 39. In verse 39, he says, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. So, Alberto, walk us through these statements of Jesus. And, of course, this is Jesus speaking, so we've got a pretty good indicator that he knows what he's talking about. Let's just uh, 
review a little bit uh, the concept of the Old Testament. There was an individual hope, a collective one in Isaiah, and in uh, Daniel chapter uh, 12, then you have the idea of the double resurrection or the resurrection of the righteousness and of the wicked. And this very same concept is, is confirmed by Jesus here, that some will be really uh, raised to receive the heavenly reward, those who were faithful to him, his beloved children, and his enemies, or those who did not follow Jesus for the everlasting uh, punishment. So in this case, Jesus himself confirms this. So it's not just an opinion, something, well, uh, the point of view of some, somebody, but nobody else would be better than to explain this to us than Jesus himself and is what he says here. So Jesus makes it pretty plain that there is a resurrection, that it's something that we can look forward to, that the righteous, both the righteous and the wicked are going to experience that resurrection. But for the righteous, I think it end, the end result is a whole lot better than for the wicked, yes? Oh, yes, definitely so. Is the opposite. And it, that will be really the final, the climax of human history. But it's interesting, remember, that the same John who recorded these words of Jesus here, also explain it further, this very same concept in Revelation chapter 20, where he speaks that these two resurrections of the righteous and of the wicked will be separated by 1,000 years. So you have that kind of uh, even clearer picture of it. Yeah, beautiful picture of the of the millennium. And incidentally, if you're interested in studying uh, end-time Bible prophecy or something along those lines, uh, you can do that online or by going to the It Is Written shop and finding some Bible study guides on that where we talk about uh, the second coming of Christ and heaven and hell and the millennium and the rapture and so forth. So you can pick that up at itiswritten.shop as well or... Uh, watch, uh, you can watch more programs where you're watching this program right now. Alberto, I want to go to a, a passage in the writings of Paul. And it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This chapter is a powerful chapter talking about, uh, about hope, I think, about encouraging things. But also, there are some words of, of caution in here. And I want to take a look at 1 Corinthians 15. We'll start in verse number 51. I'm going to read down through 55 just to get context here. But we're going to come back and focus on verse number 51. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51, here's what Paul says. He says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Now, Paul here is echoing what he's also written over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 17. But he says here that we're going to be changed at the sound of the trumpet. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, 
Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? So Paul is talking about the corruptible putting on incorruption, the mortal putting on immortality at a future time. And in verse number 51, he says, I tell you a mystery. What's this mystery that he's talking about? And what about this future time when mortal puts on immortality? Again, I think we've, we've pulled a lot of the pieces together from other parts of the Bible, but here we see Paul in complete agreement with it again. Well, actually, I consider uh, 1 Corinthians 15 probably the most powerful argument, uh, the broadest one in favor of resurrection. From the very beginning, from the very start, uh, Paul speaks about uh, evidences that Christ was raised from the dead. There were several eyewitnesses. He speaks even of 500 in one time and so on. And then that argument he builds in regard to our own or the resurrection of those who died in Christ. And there he speaks about a mystery. Let me just say what some people believe. Some people say that, that this mystery would be a secret rapture of the church uh, going in, uh, to the clouds of heaven. I don't know exactly where they would be there, the church. And then after seven years, then Christ would come again and, uh, and then to reign as a king in Jerusalem, the earthly Jerusalem. But uh, I don't see nothing of this in this chapter, unless you want to read a foreign thought into it. Uh, you will not see any kind of evidence of it here. The mystery here is explained by the text itself. Is that the dead will be raised. And the living ones, when Christ comes, the dead will be raised and the living ones will be transformed so that both groups will be with Christ in heaven. And of course, the resurrection itself is a mystery. How does it come that a body that does no longer exist was uh, absolutely destroyed, could come to life again? Of course, it's not the same ashes that now God will use. We don't know exactly how it will be, but we know that God will raise us with the same identity because we will know people as they are and also with the difference that the body would be a glorious one transformed by God's uh, creative and uh, uh, life-sustaining uh, power. And, uh, and uh, the living ones will be transformed. That's the mystery. There is no secret rapture in this one here. No, but the righteous are going to be transformed, and that's going to be an incredible, an incredible day. You know, uh, Alberto, you made mention just a, a few minutes ago about this, uh, about Revelation chapter 20. I wonder if we could go there for just a moment and, and pull a few pieces together in the time that we have remaining. In Revelation chapter 20, verse number 4, John makes reference to this, this thousand-year period. And for those who are resurrected in Revelation chapter 20, verse number 4, he says, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands 
and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That word lived there, correct me if I'm wrong, but that word lived means came to life or were resurrected. Is that correct? Absolutely. So you've got this picture of them coming to life. That's the righteous. They live and they reign with Christ for a thousand years. They reign with him in heaven. That's what he said in John 14. And then it says in verse 5, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. So there's one group, the righteous, who are resurrected at the beginning of the thousand years. They reign with Christ for a thousand years. They're involved in the judgment. But then the rest of the dead, that would have to be the wicked, didn't live until the thousand years were finished. Then it's interesting, the last part of verse number five actually belongs with verse six, and a number of versions of the Bible have have connected it as such. It says, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. You want to expound on that just a little bit more? What's, what are the righteous going to be doing as they, when they're resurrected, when they're brought back to life again? Well, this is a topic that we'll be addressing later on, the matter of the judgments. Uh, and I understand that this is lesson uh, number uh, 13, uh, the judgments just prior to the, the new heaven. But I think that here we have a chronological sequence in the book of uh, Revelation, you have first allusion to, to the first resurrection, the millennium. Then you have uh, the other resurrection. And then you have the nice portrait of the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. So in other words, I think that the crucial co- uh, understanding here is where the millennium will take place. I think that if we, if, if we bring the pieces together of the puzzle... I think that we have plenty of evidences from the passage that you read, that is John uh, 14, 1 uh, to 3, that Jesus promised uh, his disciples, his followers, that he would take them to heaven. And at the same time, later on, you have the new Jerusalem coming here. So that's the time when they will be in heaven, participating of the judgment for one reason, God does not need a judgment, but he really accommodates himself, as we used to say, to a judgment so that uh, everything can be clear. And so in the minds of the saints, there would be no doubt about why somebody would receive this reward and the other one will be punished. Can you imagine somebody having a beloved one being lost? That would be something disastrous. But God really, it comes to a point where the Bible says that God will wipe away all the tears of those that will be with him. So so that's just a little teaser for what is to come in lesson number 13 on the judgment. But if you'd like to get ahead of the curve, you can go to itiswritten.study and you can study lessons on the judgment, on the millennium, and on a lot of other uh, subjects along those lines. That's it. it that's it is written dot study. We're going to come back again next week for lesson number nine as we continue our journey through the subject of death, dying, and the future hope. And we are looking forward to seeing you again next time. God bless you, and we will see you then. <music> 